I'm Andrew Seligson, and welcome to a special episode of the Compact Nation podcast. Welcome. This is an exciting episode for us. It's a little bit different from our typical episode in that I am not joined by my usual co-hosts, Emily and Marisol. And we're sad not to be with them, but we have uh, some great content to bring you today. So I am joined by Eric Hartman, Executive Director of the Center for Peace and Global Citizenship at Haverford College. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. And so Eric uh, has a number of connections to Campus Compact, but one of them is that as co-founder of GlobalSL.org, which Eric will tell you about in just a moment, Eric has worked with Campus Compact to bring uh, information, content, discussions uh, through our website and other means to, uh, to people who care about such things. So Eric, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what GlobalSL.org is about uh, and and yeah, how, how we work together. Great. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to be here. Global SL is a network of campuses and community organizations that are deeply concerned with doing critical campus community collaborations, uh, particularly in the name of global citizenship or critical global citizenship, and with the aspiration of creating more just, inclusive, sustainable communities. I think there's a lot of organizations that um, we've been happy to ally with, including Campus Compact. And the thing that seems to distinguish the community that we're part of is that we're always looking at the transnational or global flows that are part of any particular location, whether it's in the United States or internationally. And we've been concerned with um, really taking a critical eye to the, the way that the discourse and political economy around this work can be uh, often ignored. Yeah, no. And I, you know, I think from our perspective, um, Campus Compact obviously shares a set of kind of values and concerns and interests with the folks who have come together around Global SL. Um, but it's also true that our core strengths historically have been focused on domestic communities. And so the opportunity to bring in people kind of into the conversation with us and, and help you amplify the things that you know uh, or the questions that you've been wrestling with and some voices that maybe haven't always been part of our network. We've, we've really appreciated that. And for me, this podcast episode is, is part of that as well. Um, so maybe, Eric, can you share with our listeners what, what it is they are about to hear? Sure. And this opportunity to contribute to Compact Nation, from which I've been a, a longtime listener, maybe one of your I don't want to get a competition about who's the best listener, but I've listened a lot. Um, and in any case, 
uh, we've spoken about bringing in some global themes and I was able to start quite close to my own office and uh, my own campus because one of the faculty members on our campus, Brooke Lillehagen, was recently the recipient of the Ernest A. Linton Award for the Scholarship of Engagement for Early Career Faculty. And she really received that because she's been responding over the last decade and more to a Zapotec community-driven, co-created desire for the preservation and protection of Zapotec language. Uh, And what has resulted is a series of projects, most recent of which is this talking dictionary, um, which includes community contributions that are attributable to specific community members. And actually, once we get rolling here in just a second, we'll need the listeners to hang on because they'll hear Zapotec for about a minute and a half before we get into further explanation of what's happening. All right. So uh, let's get into that conversation right now. So what you're about to hear is Eric's conversation with Brooke Lillehagen, including some Zapotec language at the beginning. I'm sorry. One more thing. Congratulations. When we did this interview, Brooke was an assistant professor. She is now associate professor of linguistics at Haverford College. I'll just share a little bit about each person and then they'll be able to share their connectivity to the project. Janet Chavez Santiago was born in Teotitlan del Valle, Oaxaca, Mexico, and comes from a family of master textile weavers and Zapotec speakers. In 2009, she began conducting research on the Zapotec language as it is spoken in Teotitlan del Valle with with the objective of designing curricula for teaching this variety of Zapotec. In 2013, in collaboration with Professor Lillehagen, she was part of starting the Teotitlan del Valle Zapotec Talking Dictionary. Brooke Lillehagen is a linguist and assistant professor in the Tri-College Department of Linguistics at Haverford College. She received her PhD in linguistics in 2006 from the University of California, Los Angeles. Lillehagen's research profile includes technical grammatical description as well as collaborative language documentation and revitalization projects. She has found combining linguistic fieldwork with tools from the digital humanities to be a productive way to collaborate with both Zapotec-speaking communities and undergraduate students. Felipe Lopez was born in San Lucas, Quiaveni, Oaxaca, Mexico, and migrated to the U.S. speaking mainly Zapotec at the age of 16. He began working with linguists in 1992 to preserve his language, and in 1999 was co-author of a Zapotec-English-Spanish Dictionary. He also received his PhD from UCLA. In July 2019, he will begin a postdoc at UCSD where he will be teaching Zapotec language and culture. Last but definitely not least, Saul Ontiveros is a first-year student at Haverford College. Saul is from Tempe, Arizona, and is studying political science with a Latin American concentration. He's a first-generation Mexican-American and the first in his family to attend college. Saul is interested in indigenous, indigenous identities and the ways they exist within a broader Latin American context. So thank you all for being here today. 
I was wondering if, Brooke, we could start with uh, you perhaps sharing a bit of summary of what you're all working on now as part of the Talking Dictionaries project. Yeah, so first of all, thank you, Eric, for hosting this and giving us a space to talk about our work and and talk about Zapotec language. Um, so the four of us that are here today are actually part of a larger team of people that are working on several different talking dictionaries in different Zapotec communities this summer. Um, we have an NSF grant. It's a research experience for undergraduate grant. The PI on that grant is David Harrison at Swarthmore, who actually was the one who came up with these talking dictionaries and invited us to join them. And I'm co-PI on that grant. So we're about to start another summer's work. So it's a good moment to kind of reflect on this. Now, as you mentioned, there's a humongous ecology of relationships around this project. So I was curious if each of you could share how you got involved in this collaboration. And maybe Janet, you could start us off. Um, well, um, back in uh, 2000. 12, uh, I was working with um, a Zapotec class uh, from my variant of Teotitlan, and there was nothing to like some, any program. Uh, there, I didn't have any kind of uh, material, like you know, like to pull and say I'm going to integrate this into my 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 class. Uh, there was nothing, so I basically did everything from from nothing. And it happened that uh, in Oaxaca, I met uh, Brooke. Uh, she told me about the, uh, the talking dictionary, uh, about um, they were uh, doing that um, back then, the uh, San Lucas Cabinet talking dictionary. She mentioned that. Later on, she said, are you interested in creating one for your variant? And I was like, of course. So since um, 2013, we started uh, working with uh, the uh, Talking Dictionary for the Titlan del Valle Zapotec. And it's been challenging in, in many ways. Like at the beginning, it was only me recording words. Uh, and then we wanted to engage the community and show them the, uh, the Talking Dictionary showing them uh, what it's the work that it's um, uh, we were doing, but also trying to like get more speakers to record the uh, words in the talking dictionary. So in that process, it has been very, very challenging, like going into the community and trying to find like the own community of speakers that will be able are uh, able to to record and um, be part of the of the of the project, and then how to keep the talking dictionary like alive, like how to uh, maintain it, not only like having the platform, but then how often I'm I'm able to record or how often uh, I can work with uh, with the community itself. So. One of the um, best things uh, for this uh, talking dictionary is having this summer field uh, work with uh, Brooke and then with um, the students. That's just like very, very helpful. And I really can see like there's uh, 
it can be more uh, a bigger commitment from the uh, community with the students, uh, like having a schedule and being like, this is uh, the work that they were doing. And then we can uh, also in this process, how we can teach the speakers uh, their own language, not, not necessarily in the uh, speaking part or talking part that which they know, but more into the linguistics, like how you like plant a little seed in them, like making them to reflect beyond only the words, you know, or uh, the language they speak. And for that also, uh, Brooke, uh, the students that uh, are trained uh, there at Haverford with uh, Brooke, it's just like very, very helpful. Like they come here they uh, with an idea of uh, the work that is going to be done and then like immersing in... Uh, under in the culture, trying to understand understand their culture from afar, and then having the uh, the experience once they're in the uh, in the community and like uh, also learn how uh, not only uh, how the uh, language works, but also like culturally how it works. Right. Great. Thank you. And um, I want to find out in a second how, uh, you know, Felipe's experience being connected with this work over time. But before we move on, you mentioned this in 2012, you were uh, doing instruction in Zapotec. Is that right? You, you were, you were doing some teaching in Zapotec and you noticed that there weren't, there wasn't your particular variety. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm there. Curious um, about that context, like what yeah. um, it was that you were doing. So, in- so Zapotec, uh, it's not a language like in the last years. It's not a language that is uh, learned in the schools. Uh, it's mainly learned uh, at home with your parents and your grandparents. So somehow the variant of my town didn't have uh, kind of nobody was uh, working on it before. Uh, there were some uh, studies of, uh, of the language itself, but there wasn't nothing uh, regarding to more the formal education of the Zapotec in a classroom. So in 2012, I was uh, working at the uh, Biblioteca de Investigación Juan de Córdoba. Uh, I already had my Zapotec project, like proposing a methodology uh, to teach Zapotec uh, as a second language. So they, uh, it was like a a place, a, a, a project that really helped me to explore more how to do, how to teach Zapotec, like me coming, coming from a, uh, not school Zapotec. uh, I didn't learn uh, Zapotec in school. So it was like interesting for me, like, uh, learning and challenging, uh, my, my teaching training on how I, I was able to do the, uh, the work. So, um, yeah, so basically it started with the, uh, this, uh, the idea of teaching Zapotec started because, uh, uh, I didn't learn Zapotec in, in school. Yeah. And lots of kids and young, uh, younger people, they are not 
learning the Zapotec or speaking the Zapotec anymore because they're like, they're, it's not in the context of their uh, school and like lots of discrimination and uh, I, uh, wrong ideas that uh, speaking an indigenous language is bad for you. Yeah, so true. yeah, I wanted to, to make a, a little change in that. So I started doing like all the program that I created uh, for my variant. Uh, I didn't have anything of it. I did work with some speakers uh, of the language like to create the, um, the curricula and the topics that I wanted to, to teach, but also how to not only teach in the language, but also culture. So I did that kind of, uh, of mix. And basically, I did only have that, my little book that I created. Then with the t- and out of that, I didn't have anything else. Once I met Brooke, we started like planning some other workshops uh, around Zapotec. And then the uh, dictionary uh, show up there and... Like, I mean, it's a great source, like, to document the language, but also a source to offer to my students and say, okay, so in the afternoon or, like, outside the classroom, you can go to the talking dictionary by yourself and trying to find a uh, new word, learning a new new word, if, if there's anything that you want to learn and we don't have it in the talking dictionary, tell me. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Felipe, how about you? What's your connection to the um, work here? Uh, well, I've been, I worked with Brooke a long time ago when she was in graduate school, but in regards to the speaking to the talking dictionary, I think it was about four years ago that I started to get more involved or very actively involved in the Tagging Dictionary at that time, she took some students to Oaxaca and uh, she wanted to uh, record a uh, work for me to help or assist some of the students. And um, we sort of reconnect uh, and, and that type of work. Uh, so it's been about four years since I've been very actively involved in the Tagging Dictionary, although at the uh, Zapotec. Talking Dictionary has been longer there, but I hadn't been very involved prior to that time because I lived uh, since 2009, 10 in Oaxaca. So that's how I started to uh, become very active in it. Sure, that makes sense. And, you know, I'm just looking at, you began working with linguists in 1992. And Correct. Very long time ago. What, what drew you or drove you to do that work? Um, well, as I, as an immigrant, I was living in LA and I started to look at my surrounding and with family, with friends. And I saw that, as they were having kids and as more younger people were arriving in, in the U S uh, I saw that most of the parents and the young people, uh, started to speak more Spanish and, uh, sort of abandoning their Zapotec language. And that made me realize that I needed to do something about my uh, recuperating my my language. And I met uh, a linguist 
student in 1991, which uh, led me to Pamela Monroe, that we work on the dictionary in order to elicit words and then try to understand the way that uh, my variation works and doing a lot of linguistic stuff, uh, which led us to come up with the trilingual dictionary in 1999. And at, at that time, Brooke became part of that project. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. Wonderful segue. We can learn about Brooke's uh, starting point of connectivity to this work. Well, I guess we pick up there in 1999, right? <laughs> so my first exposure to Zapotec uh, was at UCLA. So I had been admitted to the PhD program at UCLA, and I had some funding to do some work the summer before I started classes. And so different professors had sent different little summer projects that I could be a part of. And one of the projects was from Pam Monroe, and there was a dictionary she had just written with Felipe Lopez and others, um, and it needed to be proofread. So my first exposure to Zapotec language was proofreading the dictionary. I read it word by word, cover to cover, twice. Um, and that's how much of a nerd I am is afterwards, I was like, this is great. I want to do this more. So at that point, there was another community of Zapotec speakers living in, La in Los Angeles. They were from Tlacalula, which is yet another different community than San Lucas or Teotitlan. And they were looking for a linguist to work with them. And um, so Pam and Roe, they had contacted Pam and Roe, and we started um, meeting with them, and that's the language that I ended up writing my dissertation on. So then I start, first heard Zapotec as well in Los Angeles, in fact, in a Stoner Park in Santa Monica for any LA folks out there listening. That's uh, where I first heard Zapotec, and if you go there today, you can still hear Zapotec. It's part of the Oaxaca, California area where there's a large Zapotec community there. That's helpful. And actually, for our listeners who might be less familiar with Zapotec, could you situate kind of where it is dispersed uh, in? Sure. So the language is indigenous to Oaxaca, Mexico. So if you look at a map of Mexico, we're talking about a state that is really far south, that borders on the Pacific on the south. Oaxaca itself is very linguistically diverse. So even though we've talked about a few languages in the Zapotec family, there's all sorts of other languages in Oaxaca. And then as has become obvious, there's a large diaspora community of Zapotec speakers in the States, especially in California and the LA area, but certainly not limited there. So you can still, I think, go to mass in Zapotec in Santa Monica. Okay. And am I right in recalling about 450,000 speakers? Uh, all told, there's about 450,000 speakers of all Zapotec languages. So you've heard Janet and Felipe talk about their variant. <laughs> Uh, other linguists might talk, use the word dialect. We don't use the word dialect when talking about Zapotec because the Spanish word dialecto is really pejorative and it is used to mean something that's less than a language. So even when talking in English, we are not going to use that because we don't want to be mistaken for saying that. Um, but the Zapotec language family itself is as diverse as the Romance language family. So if you think about all the Romance languages, you know, Italian, Portuguese, French, these really are very different from each other. So when we're talking about 450,000 speakers, we're talking about of the whole language family. Most of the Zapotec languages are endangered and many are critically endangered. If there's speakers, if there are no speakers under 50, for example, the possibility for intergenerational teaching in the household, like Janet was talking about, is a lot more complicated. Um, and then, then you might 
end up with the possibility of having no children who are native speakers. And that's, that's when language communities are shifting to Spanish in this case, and where languages can be considered endangered or threatened. Speakers like to talk about this in different ways. Great. Thank you. And Saul, could you share how you got involved with the project and your interest? Uh... Yeah, sure. So I heard about the project from my professor, Belina Chospejo. She's my political science professor. And he would spend office hours just talking about politics in Latin America. And she realized that a lot of the questions that I was asking kind of deviated from her focus and from her uh, from her discipline. So she encouraged me to uh, apply to this program, which uh, Brooke was leading, which is this program that I'm doing this summer. Uh, and I did. And uh, because of her recommendation, I became part of the program. I am now in Brooke's linguistics and diversity class. And since being in that class, I've been immersed in linguistics and I'm asking questions I have never really asked before. So it's, it's been an exciting time since I've this semester has been a really exciting time. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Felipe, what were you starting? Yeah, I was going to add the advantages having worked with uh, the dictionary that we that was published in 1999 and now working with the um, Tacken dictionary, I would like to um, make a couple of observations for uh, what, what use uh, would the community have for it. Uh, I think that it's... <laughs> The difference is that uh, thinking back about the dictionary where it's very static, right? Where once you have a, a word in it and once it's published, you, I mean, it would cost a lot of money to go back and then add uh, definitions or make changes, especially in the orthography. And it's that, so it's, it's done. It's a done deal. And whereas the talking dictionary, I think that that's, I see it more as a living thing right that you can actually interact with and there are some language exactly with the language and and then people uh who speak different variation even in the same community women who speak different in my community the men we can add all those differences and not only that as i think that brooke or you mentioned that is something it's free it's uh accessible and um also not just the people who live in oaxaca have access to that but also, the um, the immigrants, the diaspora who live in LA, they have a way of interacting with the language, which is really for me as a as a person who's trying to document the language. Really important for the younger generation to have access to their own language because uh, the dictionary that uh, we did in 1999, we had only 500 copies. Now it's out of print. So, and whereas the talking dictionary it's, it's it's there you know and we're going to be adding more words and enriching it in some of the words that we didn't have in the dictionary and will be in the talking dictionary so it's it's, it's really flexible okay. and of, of great help for those who want to access their own language or the outside people outsiders compact listeners are often quite interested in how community-driven scholarship and learning is guided by um, members of the community how does this project ensure that, or what are the other ways this project ensures that community members are guiding efforts and sharing their expertise? Okay. Um, in my particular work that, uh, that goes back from 1991, I think that one of the first things that we did is to meet with the local authorities to ask them, like, and also suggest for other people that would be part of the initial work that the, they should feel engaged and not, uh, 
be left outside. So I think that by incorporating and inviting people that they should feel part of the project, it it's, was a very important departure from us, uh, the community participation. Thank you. Yeah, and if I could add something, um, probably already listeners can imagine that uh, in addition to talking about building the dictionary and about Zapotec, we talk a lot about how to do this kind of work across all the differences that you're hearing, right? So uh, on the team that's doing this work, there's Zapotec people and there's non-Zapotec people. And on this team, there's people that are bringing all sorts of different kinds of expertise. And so not only do we view, you know, the dictionary as the project, but also continually talk about what does it mean to do this kind of work and what are the complications of the different kinds of privilege around this. Um, so for example, with the students like Saul right now, in anticipation of leaving to Oaxaca, we have 40 hours of training that's happening even before we get to Oaxaca to start talking about all these kinds of things. And not that that means you're going to show up like prepared because even in the moment you think you know anything is when you're reminded that you don't. And so part of doing this work is to remain humble, to remain willing to be corrected and to really listen and to know that for myself, I'm not a Zapotec person, that when I'm working in a Pueblo, when I'm working in a Zapotec community, that I really need to continually listen and learn about appropriate ways of, of working in this community. And I can give you an example from Verily early on in this work. So when David Harrison came to me with the possibility of having Zapotec dictionaries, so I should be clear that there's hundreds of talking dictionaries. If you go to talkingdictionary.swarthmore.edu, there's hundreds of dictionaries from all over the world. So when I joined the faculty here and David asked, is this something you think Zapotec communities would be interested in? Um, I thought they might be, and I thought it'd be a question I could easier, more easily ask if I brought a sample. So um, I reached out to Felipe at that time and we had recordings from him already. And then I had recordings from another variety and Tlacolula and I made little sample dictionaries without having to record anyone new. And Felipe's variety of Zapotec and Tlacolula are very, very similar. So I put them together and I called it Tlacolula Valley Zapotec because as a linguist, I saw, well, these are very similar varieties. We can put them together. And when I went to show the sample, people were like, well, that's very nice, but we want one just for our language. And it was like very, very clear. I was like, okay, no problem, right? And this has continually been the feedback. And not only that, but pictures, pictures from the town itself. And it makes perfect sense. So I think if there's a, not only an asking once, but a repeated asking and a repeated returning, and then a willingness to then make significant changes based on what you're told, um, I think that's one way to maybe hope that you're really trying to listen. And that is you're emphasizing your asking permission, asking whether it's okay, asking whether something sounds right, ask, asking, and, and I've, I've seen you model this and do this, but just asking repeatedly at juncture after juncture. Is, is that what you're emphasizing here? Yeah. And yeah, I said you, but I mean me. And, <laughs> and um, also I think that this kind of work that we're trying to do here really is only possible with cyclical returning and cyclical reconsidering. Um, and so every summer almost I bring students there. And it's interesting because Moises, who couldn't be here with us today, um, he made a comment once that was really interesting to me. He said, every summer Brooke brings her students. And the students are always different, right? But somehow they also 
all count as like the same students. Like it's like the students are returning even if they're different students. So this commitment to continually be there and and really be open to what what the feedback is. Um, and that's one of the cool things about the talking dictionary. You know, there's a lot of things in flux, like writing systems. How do we want to spell these things? And actually here, I said we, but I really mean, how do the communities want to spell these things? And both Felipe and Janet and Moises have really wrestled with this. These are not easy questions, but we can proceed without deciding, which is really exciting because mm -hmm. in a print dictionary, you cannot. You cannot proceed on a dictionary until you decide how to write it. But we can proceed without deciding to write it, which allows time for discussions. So this can be, in a way, it seems digital and fast, but somehow the mechanism of the digitalness of it, the fact that it can be easily changed, allows for a slowness and a reconsideration, which I really value. Yeah. It relates to a question I've wondered about, or I'm wondering if it relates. So, you know, oftentimes communities are interested in particular things and certainly heard here the interest in the... Um, preservation, the advocacy around the language. The scholars, uh, academics, and institutions of higher learning are rewarded for different things, right? Peer-reviewed article production, et cetera. Um, have, has that been a tension? How have uh, any of you who are in educational roles navigated that, if, if that exists? I think I was wondering that broadly, but I guess I particularly am curious if the way that this dictionary is engaging with a new kind of representation if that has helped with that kind of tension at all you can have a living reviewed document i'm going to tell you how i dealt with it but i'm not saying that this is a recommendation in fact i think it's i hope this is not how people have to continue to deal with this so because this work is highly collaborative with lots of co-authors and digital in nature and not peer-reviewed, I worked on this with the assumption that it would not count towards tenure. So I kind of assumed that I, I couldn't predict how outside reviewers would look at this, linguists, even, even being linguists. Um, so I thought I'm going to need to make sure that I have enough things that look like traditional peer-reviewed work for my tenure case. And that if someone sees this as icing on the cake, great. And if they don't count it, then fine. Um, that was really difficult. That was really hard to do it that way. And I know that there's lots of discussions around talking about how these things can change. Um, but there was a lot of fear around it. And so I didn't want to take a chance in that. And so I kind of did both. Um, so I would say for, for the folks listening to this who, who are involved in administration in various ways that I know that myself, this is something that caused a lot of anxiety on, on how to spend the time doing this kind of work that I really value that in some ways I'm more proud of than most of my peer reviewed journal articles. Um, and I will say that the Linton Award, that was something I think that is legible on a CV. So I think that is something that would count under a tenure case, that kind of recognition. So in that case, that was very helpful for me. Um, Go ahead, Felipe. Uh, yeah, well, now that Brooke said something on, on the end of the other researcher, I think that there is also a misconception from the community side uh, that 
yet I think that uh, that needs a conversation because in many times I often hear that, uh, look, you know, this person comes to the community and it's going to get articles and advance in um, the career. But as, as, as we just heard, right, that it is more complicated than that. And I think that uh, something that we might have to work in, on the community to understand also that by academics coming to our communities, it doesn't mean that they're going to get a lot of advances in their um in their in their educational progress, such as getting tenure or whatnot, so I think that uh, that's that's a really interesting question that I have wrestled with. You know, even though I've been out of academia for a while, but still, people feel that uh, if we do something with the languages for our own benefit, and they will help us a lot in our career, but uh, the reality is just what Brooke talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I feel compelled to mention a friend and colleague, uh, Timothy Eatman, was on campus just recently here. And one of the things he said in his presentation yesterday where he was really pushing the people who were gathered to think about um, different kinds of artifacts, like uh, primary kind of reports that are done on behalf of community members, or in, in this case, the talking dictionary, clearly um, a kind of co-collaborative um, mobilization of knowledge that is tributable across a whole network, but nonetheless very much matters for people. Uh, Thinking about those as artifacts that could be considered by peers. That was one push. The other push was we are all peers here. You all peers in the network, right? The peers are the people who are in a space to think about has this work advanced language advocacy as the people who have been most involved with it for their, their lives um, would judge. And that is uh, something that would be a incredible stretch for most, for many, many uh, peer review committees, but important to think about. Um, and it can kind of see the form of it here. Following this uh, thread, uh, I think it's very important to say that uh, there are two different kinds of doing uh, academic research work uh, within the linguistic uh, linguists community. And one is like in the academics that go to the communities and go and work with uh, families uh, for years and years and then not hearing anything back of the work that it's been done. Like I, Sometimes and many times that information that it's gathered uh, regarding to the language, it's not available for the community itself. Uh, So how can you approach that kind of uh, information that the academic uh, has gotten to the community? It's like, they are not going to, like, to a normal non-linguist person, uh, people won't uh, understand about uh, lexic- lexical things or morphology or, you know. And in the other side, like, this kind of work with uh, the talking dictionary, but also, like, all, all the other work, uh, projects that uh, Brooke has uh, started and has, it's more like outside for outside you know like Mm -hmm. she knows like the background and she knows how it what it takes 
to get there. But then you have something to show to the community and something that the community can feel like they own and that's that's available for them and it can be understood by them. So I think that's one of the one of the most value uh, valuable things and uh, to recognize of this kind of work that uh, Brooke is doing. Like she's, as she said, is cyclic. Uh, she's always back. Right, right. She's always like ha- have a presence, and somehow people connect uh, her work with uh, the community. So, and with other, um, I mean, with other works that has been done in terms of linguistics that I have, I mean, sometimes I find something online because I'm uh, looking for something specific and I, I get to find something about my own uh, variant in Zapotec that I didn't know that existed, you know, so how you can also be more uh, reachable for the community. So I guess like uh, probably this kind of work, like talking dictionary is something that it's more seen for non-linguists as a hint like of attracting the attention and say there's something going on beyond this talking dictionary. There's more, you know? Right. And so one of the vehicles of doing that and kind of calling people together that I've been impressed with, I, I don't know if it's still happening, but the Usa, Usa Tuvos uh, hashtag on Twitter, the way that made Classroom Porous. Uh, Brooke, could you share a little bit about what that's about? And I imagine many of the folks in this call have been involved with that too. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and for the people listening, this is a way too. If you want to see some Zaptec writing on Twitter, if you want to see and meet more Zaptec language activists, uh, there's a campaign on Twitter with the hashtag #usatuvos, so like the Spanish #usatuvos, um, that started with Zaptec language activists, but now I believe there's even speakers of other Oaxacan languages using this um, as a way to write and use their language in this global context um, and is really an invitation often to a conversation. So many of these tweets would be in multilingual tweets in Zapotec and Spanish or Zapotec and English. It's beautiful as well. It's often accompanied by pictures, which you know, is such a great way to engage. Um, I, I enjoy it as a non-Zapotec speaker very much. Very interesting space. Um, Saul, I know you mentioned earlier, and I was so tempted to dive in right away, that you've been having this incredible semester that's really kind of expanding your thinking around some of the themes that have interested you. Could you share a little bit more about us, um, or sorry, about that with us, about the ways in which your classroom and perhaps outside of the classroom learning are advancing your, your thinking and scholarship this year? Yeah, so I um, went to a high school that had very, I don't know, limited resources and the amount of exploration I could have in terms of, you know, seeing the world, you know, we didn't have any big college trips to, I mean, high school trips to like Disneyland or like London, like some high schools have. So coming to college and having in my first semester, the opportunity to go to Mexico City and to understand something that I really care about is just blew my mind completely and the prospect of going to Oaxaca and um, 
later on in Guatemala, it's, it's, I have a very hard time conceptualizing that I'm actually doing these things because they just seem so out of place. Um, but to your question, I, I really, really enjoy these experiences that allow me to kind of challenge what I'm learning in the classroom. Uh, as a college student, I realize I'm developing certain privileges that um, other students um, in other spaces don't have. So being able to go into a space to learn is a privilege on its own, and I'm accepting that wholeheartedly. Uh, and going to Oaxaca, that's something that I'm really trying to internalize, that I'm entering a space that is not my own, and it's an invitation that I'm accepting um, graciously and something that I, I'm trying my best to not ruin by my, um, I don't know, my naive sense of what it's like to travel the world because I have not had such experience, but I, I am, I'm really excited to, to find where the, the discrepancies in, in what I'm learning in the classroom and find the little cracks where, where some scholar got it wrong. And I can be like, Oh, well in this place they're doing it this way. So um, I, I'm excited for both what I can affirm and what I can challenge. Yeah. That's great. That is uh, beautiful to hear. I realize we've taken, you know, the, the time that we said we'd have together. Um, I feel like I'd love to talk with you all evening, but um, maybe we could take just a couple of minutes. I'm curious if any of you have any closing thoughts, um, either that you want to do a summary on or you heard from one another that you'd like to comment on. And one thing I, I'm aware, I don't, I don't want this to sound trivializing. I, I know that uh, utterance is not a language, but it just strikes me that we haven't heard any Zapotec on this conversation. And I just was just curious if anyone would like to bring that into the room. I was waiting for the right moment. <laughs> and this is the right moment. <laughs> well, um and uh, translation, I thank you for all the listeners uh, for listening, and hopefully they will help us spread the word uh, about our work in Zapotec. Thank you, Felipe. Stusen Benre, Stusen Eric, Stusen Brook, te runidan te espacio de non par par guindiak dos dos dizão. Do you need translation? I, I indeed, I indeed do. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, of course. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for the space. Thank you to Brooke and uh, Eric for this space. Uh, I will like, I, I love to uh, people to hear about our language, how it sounds, the, uh, the or Zapotec from Teotitlan del Valle. And um, thank you for, for the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, thanks, Felipe, and thanks, Janet, for being willing to share your language um, so that other people can hear, hear Zapotec. And it, it might be worth pointing out, you know, 2019 is the UN 
year of Indigenous language. And so this conversation, um, well, while we should be continually having it, it's, it's good to acknowledge that this year is also especially dedicated to these conversations. And I hope that they build more more conversations and more works going forward and that they don't end in this year. Um, thanks again, Eric, for having us. And I understand uh, for the listeners that Eric will be posting some links up that will be accessible to you. Those links will allow you to see the Dictionary of Felipe's Language, which is San Lucas Givini, the Dictionary of Janet's Language, which is Teotitlan del Valle, another language from another community that we're working with, and something that we didn't really have a chance to talk about, but we're really excited, a new feature we'll be implementing this summer is embedding tweets in the dictionary. So you heard us talk about tweets and you heard us talking about the dictionary. Those are going to be um, feeding into one another this summer. And you can see a sample entry that utilizes tweets in the dictionary as well up on the blog post. So thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. And actually, um, Saul. Anything further? Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. This is my first podcast and my first time interacting in a sort of, I don't know, sharing space, reflection, reflecting process. Uh, I want to thank Brooke again for allowing me to join this project and Felipe for kind of guiding me towards this new Zapotec path I'm entering. And I'm excited to meet Janet soon, hopefully. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for all the different um, work and insight and intersections you bring to this work. Uh, for my part, um, actually, it's a great opportunity to be able to uh, be part of this Campus Compact uh, podcast with a global theme. I started very close to home in some way by interviewing Brooke at uh, Haverford College. One of the oddities, I think, of the notion of global citizenship is that it has this language of citizenship, which we often associate with states. But I think at its best, kind of critical work, uh, things done in the name of global learning, global citizenship are working to understand what it might be to have different kinds of imaginations than statist imaginations. And your work is so... Uh, instructive and helpful beyond ways in which I can understand uh, to help us think about other ways of being. And I'm just very grateful for that. So thank you all. Welcome back. I hope you found that an interesting conversation. And just one kind of quick follow-up. Uh, Eric, you and I discussed off-air uh, the fact that, that Brooke, like many other faculty members at Haverford, had been doing community-engaged work of various kinds before you arrived. And I know that one of the things you've been doing is kind of connecting people together around some shared concepts and values and directions. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that work has looked like at Haverford and kind of where it's aimed. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, this is something I continue to learn about um, as I'm starting to enter uh, what will be my fourth year at Haverford in the fall. Um, but it is true that when I arrived, there were activities related to community engagement and service learning happening in different nodes. And there were faculty who were doing a lot of incredible projects that they were community and network driven, um, like this linguist project, the Zapotec project that Brooke's been part of. They, they 
went on for long periods of time, years or maybe even more than a decade. Um, and what they produced wasn't just conventional scholarship, but something that community folks were looking for. Um, these Identifying this and other projects, for example, in history that involve human rights archives, um, processes, have really given us a chance to connect what scholars are doing in their scholarly world with really close student mentoring. And it is very much what we've been working to promote in the community engagement service learning field for many years. Um, but being open to this different kind of language uh, and recognizing people where they are has really, I think, helped us do a kind of asset-based community development on campus. And, you know, these are the things we're already doing. Um, and I'm sort of still reflecting on the implications. I do think the institutions are changing and we're seeing many more community-engaged and participatory methods um, in a lot of fields. Again, not always going by the names that, and, and coming to the same conferences we do in, in our field. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, from our work, the, the a lot of the a sort of thrust of the civic action planning work that we've been supporting on campuses around the country is motivated in a similar way that we often have a great deal of publicly facing work with a shared set of values about building more equitable and inclusive and participatory communities that isn't operating under some single banner. And it isn't that you want to fit everybody into some narrow mold, but there is value in pulling together that work to see how it might interact for greater impact, how others can learn from it. And in some ways, just like what it says about what your institution really cares about, what the communities it's connected to care about. Like you can, I think there's a lot just to be learned from understanding what you're already doing. And then you can start to ask questions about how can we take it even further? I mean, that is the asset based uh, model. So, Eric, we're going to be doing another podcast in partnership with Global SL. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect? Sure. The University of Dayton has been thinking about its community impacts locally and internationally through the lens of sustainable development goals. And that's, of course, a U.N.-sanctioned uh, set of agreements around a, 20, a 2030 agenda for achieving human and ecological flourishing. Uh, it's a really comprehensive view of um, all, all countries um, agreed on at an international level includes 20, 230 different metrics. And they're thinking about how would we use that to think about our community engagement courses, but also our campus operations, our infrastructure, et cetera. It's a really interesting twist on university impact. That's great. So people can uh, keep their ears open for that podcast. And Eric, I want to thank you very much for the whole partnership uh, with Global SL and Campus Compact, and also for joining us today on the podcast. I want to thank Brooke, Janet, Felipe, and Saul. And that is it. So thank you all for listening to the Compact Nation podcast. I want, as always, to remind you to rate and review us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org. You can reach us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod. And uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, talking to and with you again in the near future. Thank you. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. 
Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.